Hey, good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. My name is Jason Espy. I serve her as an elder. Uh, we're going to continue in Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah. So if you want to turn there. Okay, we ended off in, in verse 9 last week. We're going to pick it up in verse 10 and go through the rest of the chapter. So verse 10 says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their distress, disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. And do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations as you have done. It will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head because just as you drink on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them. So that they so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 19. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. And those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain. Also, they will possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Amen. Thank you, Jason. A lot of funny names in there. Uh, I have trouble with them, too. Well, good morning, friends. Keep your place in Obadiah. Today we're going to go from Obadiah chapter 10, has already been written, written, read, excuse me, through the end of the book. Uh, today, I mean, if you just picked up on it a little bit, there's a lot going on in the book of Obadiah, specifically from verse uh, 10 through the end of the book. So I'm going to do my best to try to get through all 21 verses. There's stuff on history, eschatology, the past. I mean, it's just, there's a ton of things going on in this passage today. Um, but really, if you could put it in a word, the book of Obadiah, if you have your notes, the very first blank at the top of the sheet, the book of Obadiah in a word is the, is the word pride. 
That's the center theme of this book, the pride of the nation of Edom. And specifically, our text today talks about uh, bitterness as the second root of pride. Edom is a prideful nation. As it says in chapter 1, verse 3, the arrogance or pride of your heart has deceived you. They, the Edomites are angry and bitter towards Israel. And as we talked about last week, uh, from a humanistic standpoint, humanistic perspective, I mean, who would blame them? From Edom's perspective, Israel stole what? They stole the inheritance and they stole the birthright. And so the Edomites, since the day of Genesis chapter 27, have been bitter towards Israel. Of course, Edom inherited their bitterness from their forefather named Esau. This is in Genesis 27. So Edom comes from Esau and Israel comes from Jacob. Verse 41 of Genesis 27 says this. So Esau hated or bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And since that day, some, what, 4,500 years ago, those nations have been on a collision course. But rage and bitterness, anger, resentment is not of the Lord. Is not of God. Anger, rage, fury was the downfall of Edom, was the downfall of Esau, was the downfall of Judas, and was the downfall of a captain of a ship. How many of you have ever, or you, you probably haven't read it because I think it's like 3,000 pages long, okay? Um, how many of you have ever read the, heard of the book Moby Dick? Anybody saying that? Anybody, anybody talking? Okay, there we go. So if you remember the book Moby Dick, it's told through the eyes of a young man named Ishmael. Ishmael becomes a harpooner on the whaling ship, the Quad, which is led by, if you remember, a maniacal captain by the name of Ahab. And Captain Ahab had one ultimate purpose, to find and to kill what? The great white whale named Moby Dick. But why is Captain Ahab set on killing that white whale? Well, in a previous whaling expedition, the great white whale, Moby Dick, took a Captain Ahab's leg. And since that day, Ahab sought to slay the whale. In lieu of the costs, in lieu of the lives lost, the time lost, the money and effort lost, regardless of the consequences to Ahab and his men, he was set on to seek and destroy a white whale named Moby Dick. But if you remember that story, in the process of his vengeance, in the process of his bitterness, resentment, and rage, he destroys himself and his crew. But why is that book so famous? You know, it's long. If you've ever read that book, there's a lot of yees and dos and thous and all this kind of stuff. You know, why is that book so well known even in our culture today? It's probably because each of us have known a Captain Ahab. And at times, each of us have a Moby Dick. But think about Captain Ahab. What is Captain Ahab forgetting? I mean, he has this great white whale somewhere in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. He set out his life, his mind, his resources, his time to kill this one animal. But what is Captain Ahab forgetting? He's forgetting two things. He's forgetting the innocent bystanders that are on the ship named Ishmael and the other sailors. And he's forgetting that Moby Dick is a whale. 
It don't care nothing about Captain Ahab. But Captain Ahab's bitterness, his pride, his resentment, his anger, his rage, his fury have blinded him to the truth. At times in life, we each can be Captain Ahab and we each can have a Moby Dick. I would imagine you've known people in your life and your family members. I've known, imagine each of you here this morning at times have targeted one specific purpose as the blame and the resentment for your life, for your fury. I've seen that in my personal family going back multiple generations that, that we pin upon certain people our rage, our disappointment, our anger. But friends, uh, you have freedom in Christ. You have been forgiven, so then we should forgive others. Life is painful enough. Don't make it harder on yourself. But I would imagine today, we talk about pride. We're talking about bitterness as the root of pride. We're talking about anger, resentment, because that's why, that's what the Edomites are. In verse 3 and also in verse 10, we see this kind of unpacked in our passage today. And I would imagine some of us here this morning, I'm not a mind reader, praise the Lord, because I hope you're not thinking about sleeping today. Okay. Um, I'm not a mind reader, but I would imagine some of us, when, when you hear the topic of bitterness, we, we hope that somebody's present in the room. Or we wish that somebody in our past would hear this sermon. It's kind of like the guy that, I remember one time I was standing in the hallway, and this guy, man, he was probably a middle-aged dude, and dude is a proper term. Okay, and um, I'm supposed to be sophisticated. Anyways, let's say dudes. Okay, so this guy in his middle age, he, he runs up to me, man. He's like, his eyes are bugged out of his head. He's so excited, right? And he, he's, he's doing one of these numbers, right? And he's like, Brian, that was a great sermon. And I was like, okay, and he said, for my wife. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of what we do with sermons is we kind of hope other people learn from them and but all of us at times are captain ahab all of us have moby dicks all of us have things in our past that we should be unlike edom bitterness is a pressure cooker in our soul it is something that we think on in private, seldom spew in public but builds and builds and builds until it harms the ishmaels in our life the root issue today in our passage with Edom and the nation of Israel is the bitterness that they have towards them. They inherited their grudge from their father Esau. And what we see in our passage today is we don't only see the second half of their charge, the charge against the nation of Edom, but then we also see judgment, or what we would say the chickens come home to roost in the south. We see the judgment that happens, and then at the end of the passage, verse 17 through 21, we see the redemption to the nation of Israel. So we see the charge in verses 1 through 14. We see kind of part two of that today. Then we see the judgment or the sentence, and then we see the redemption to the nation of Israel. Now, I have a favor to ask before we go on any further. I'm going to encourage you just to hang in there with me. We're talking a lot about theology, eschatology, the day of the Lord, all this stuff. I would encourage you just to hang in there with me. So the question we're answering today is this. This is the subject. What is the root and fruit of pride? What is the root and fruit of pride already? We are seeing the root of pride. Previously, the charge is pride. And what we've seen in verses 1 through 10, excuse me, 1 through 9, we kind of see the first part of the charge against the nation of Edom is that they are arrogant and proud and that has deceived them to the truth. And then we see that their pride is rooted in last week, a false sense of security. Pride, one of the, one of the 
tenets, one of the roots of pride is always a false sense of security. That I don't really need God because. I don't really need to forgive because. What were they prideful in? They were prideful in their possessions. They were prideful in their money, in their relationships, and also in their own intelligence. So we see the charge against them is pride. And then we see the first root of pride is a false sense of security. And what we're talking about today is the second root of pride, which is bitterness. And that's what we see in the nation of Edom. So if you have your text with me, notice verse 10. Now, before we really dive in as well, um, I just want to say something. Can pride, as it says in verse 3, can pride deceive us? So many times, friends, when we are prideful, when we're angry, or whatever it is, we see the world through a skew view. And then eventually we become like Captain Ahab and the people that we've known to be that way. It deceived Nebuchadnezzar, pride. It deceived Judas. It deceived so many people, and it could deceive us even today. Notice... The anger and bitterness come forth in verse 10 of your text. So this is kind of part two to the charge. And then we'll see the judgment and then we'll see Israel's redemption. So this is a very full passage. So hang in there. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob. Again, Jacob, he's referring to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to the descendants of Esau. So because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. So how is their bitterness towards Israel revealed? So we see the root of pride, and then we see the fruit. How is it revealed? It's revealed, number one, if you have your notes, a lack of action. A lack of action. Notice verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof. So what's going on in Edom? Israel is under attack at this particular time for the nation of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar just overthrew the city of Jerusalem. That's why we can date this book to about 586 B.C. On the day that Nebuchadnezzar overtook Jerusalem, on that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Okay. So what did the nation of Edom do? They just what? They stood by as an accomplice. They stood aloof. They let strangers carry away the wealth of the nation of Israel. Foreign heirs entered their gate. They cast lots for Jerusalem. And you two were as one of them. So either the nation of Edom joined in with Babylon or they just stood aside and just let uh, Babylon kind of take over. Okay. They saw a plight. They saw an issue, but because of their anger and bitterness, they stood aside and let it happen. How many of you have ever watched a movie, um, and you, there was a really good bad guy? You might know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you think about your favorite movie. Almost all of them have a good guy and a bad guy, and then redemption. That's the three pieces of a good movie. The good guy, the bad guy, the conflict, and then the redemption at the end. Okay, so if you've ever had a really, somebody in a movie that just got under your skin, what do you say at the end of the movie when they get theirs? You say, they had what's coming to them. That's kind of what I see with the nation of Edom. They've been so angry. At this point, they've been angry at Israel for at least 1,500 years. They have just this mentality from the father that they inherited from Esau of just being resentful toward the nation of Israel. And even though they are blood relatives, they stand aside and just say, well, 
I'm glad they got what's coming to them. They stood aside. So the first root of bitterness is just, well, good. They deserved it. But then notice the second part. What is the another fruit of bitterness? Number one is a lack of action, just standing aside, standing aloof, letting it happen. But then also is rejoicing at the demise of other people. Notice what Edom does. I think there's kind of something inferred here. Do not gloat. The word gloat here means to look or to see. It means to stare from afar. My wife says I'm a starer, okay? Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah. This is why we believe it's the southern kingdom of 586 B.C. is because of this phrase right here, over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. You notice that's repeated again and again and again. And do not go in there and loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison the survivors in the day of their distress. Okay. So historically, what is going on? We talked about this a little bit last week. So what happened is, if you remember, you had Saul... David and Solomon. Then Solomon had a son named what? Named Rehoboam, who was a knucklehead, if you remember that. And then the northern kingdom split off from the southern kingdom. So you had the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel was taken over by Assyria. And then about 150 years later, Babylon then conquered the land of Judah in about 586 B.C. And so what is going on here? It's kind of difficult to know exactly the timing from this passage. But what happened was that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, invades the southern kingdom of Judah and then besieges the city of Jerusalem for 18 months and then carries off the good people to Babylon and leaves behind a mixed bag. So historically, when we come into this verse, Babylon just got done ransacking Judah and Babylon seized Jerusalem And then what did Edom do then and do after? They gloated over them. They stood idly by. They looted their land. They imprisoned their fugitives. Okay. What is Edom forgetting? You know, when you see verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, we'll see the judgment here in just a minute, but what are they simply forgetting? What is Edom just have out of their mind that their pride and their arrogance have so deceived them that they're forgetting who the nation of Israel is. Who is the nation of Israel? They are gods. They were gods and are gods chosen nation that according to the Abrahamic covenant, God will curse those who curse you and bless those who bless them. So in other words, Edom should have used a little bit of caution Why? Because Israel is God's chosen nation. Oh, it's not just any God that is God's chosen nation. It's the God that chose to make Lot's wife a pillar of salt. It's the God that chose to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the God that chose to part the Red Sea. It's the God that chose to sweep aside Pharaoh and his armies. Oh, that God. Adonai Yahweh, the the God, the self-existent one, the ruler and king and master over all the earth. That the one true God, his nation is the nation of Israel and the Edomites are rejoicing over their demise. I 
think there's going to be probably some judgment for their behavior in forgetting that Israel is God's chosen nation. Okay. I would imagine all of us in this room have known a Captain Ahab. I've seen it in my personal family. I had a relative one time that for the next 40 years, something bad happened to him, somebody stole some money from him, and for the next 40 years, almost every single day, he would talk about the one guy that stole some money from him. Okay, that was his Moby Dick, and that relative of mine was Captain Ahab. All of us in this room have known one of those, and probably at times have struggled ourselves with a little bit of rage. When we are angry at someone else, we show that anger in a lack of action and a little bit of rejoicing at the person's struggle and trials in life. That's just the way we are. But what also are we forgetting? If we are like the Edomites, if we see somebody in distress and we just stand aside and we're a little bit happy at their demise, what are we forgetting? Well, in the very least, people are what? Created in the image of God. And if they're a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, that they are a child of God and that there might be pending consequences, not only to ourselves, but to the innocent Ishmaels in our life that see the rage in our heart. I'll tell you, man, the person that is a relative of mine that meditated on that thing 40 years ago uh, or somebody stealing money, that that act of bitterness was, is a generational sin. And I won't tell you who that person was in my life. They're long gone and passed away. So, yeah, anyways, I guess I could talk about them, but I'm not going to, um, at least in name. Um, but that became a generational sin. Friends, listen, life is too short. Life is painful enough. Let things go. Forgive. The Edomites are sitting there stewing on something, a wrong that happened 2,000 years before. And they are prideful. Life is painful enough. Don't make it harder on yourself. Forgive. They are forgetting when they relish in the demise of the nation of Israel, that the nation of Israel is the nation of God, not just any God, but the God, Adonai and Yahweh over all. God is not just the God over all, but what does it say in Isaiah chapter 40? It says that God is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Um, I saw a little boy this week at the church try to kill a grasshopper with his foot. That's kind of the image I have there, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's in control. And when we forget about God's creation, when we have that deception from bitterness or anger or fury in our heart, then we are forgetting not only who that person is, but we're forgetting who God truly is as a whole. So pride, the book of Obadiah in a word is pride. Pride rooted in a false sense of security. Pride rooted in bitterness. The fruit of the fruit of bitterness is found in a lack of action and rejoicing over the demise of another. But this is the judgment. This is kind of the turning point of the whole book. This is when the chickens come home to roost. In verse 15, Edom's charge is pride, and their sentence is judgment, both imminent and eschatological. I'll talk about what this word means. Both judgment, both imminent and eschatological. This is the judgment that comes upon the nation of Edom. I think it's both immediate in the 586 BC, but also it is future bound. For the day of the Lord, this is judgment. For the day of the Lord, if you have a pen, circle that phrase. It is a very important theological idea. We'll talk about it in just a minute. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations as you have done. 
and it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. What does it say? For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations, including the nation of Edom. I believe that there is two things going on here. I see an imminent judgment and I see an eschatological judgment. The imminent judgment is this, that what we know from history, we don't really see it from the book of Obadiah, but what happens to the nation of Edom? I had somebody last week say to me, well, Byron, you left a lot of questions unanswered. And I think one of them is what even happens to Edom? We see this judgment. We see what's coming to them. We don't really see it in the book of Obadiah. But we know from history that there is an imminent judgment to this nation. How do we know that? Well, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar in the country of Babylon come and conquer the sons of Judah, overthrow the city of Jerusalem after an 18-month besiegement. And then what happens? You know, the Edomites, after their demise, are standing across the Dead Sea and the Jordan River going, na 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 And then what they don't realize, historically, is that the big army that just conquered Judah is coming for them, okay? So they have their turn. Historically, Babylon then crosses probably the Jordan River, goes underneath the Dead Sea to the nation of Edom, conquers them, basically deports them. And then what else happens? Then during the intertestamental time, the 400 years of silence, that the Maccabees then further conquer the nation of Edom. And then in 70 A.D., and this, the overthrow of the temple and that whole area, the Romans overthrow Israel, overthrow Edom, and then after 70 A.D., Edom no longer exists as a nation. So all that, so I, as I said from the beginning, hang in there. That's what happened historically. But what's going on with verse 15? For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. And we know from history it is. It is returned on their own head. But then what is this day of the Lord? Now, if you're familiar, how many of you have ever heard of the day of the Lord before? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. It's a day of pending judgment. And what I mean, I'm going to put in for this, a day. It depends on your eschatological, fancy word, framework. You can have a variety of different opinions on what the day of the Lord is. Personally speaking, I think the day of the Lord lasts for 1,007 years. It lasts for 1,007 years. The day of the Lord is ushered in at the rapture time. Sent in First Thessalonians chapter 5. It lasts for seven years. And then the day of the Lord goes through the millennial kingdom. And the reason I believe it goes through the millennial kingdom is because of Second Peter chapter 3. And showing that the earth is destroyed by fire and the ushering in the new heaven and new earth. So the day of the Lord, in my opinion, goes through the tribulation, through the earthly reign and the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And then you have the great white throne of judgment as kind of the final act of the day of the Lord. Okay. Okay. So the, some of the places, some of the places the day of the Lord is described. You can look at these up later. Joel 2, Zephaniah 1, Isaiah 13, Amos 5. And one commentator describes it this way. The day of the Lord is that extended period of time beginning with God's dealing with Israel after the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation period and extending through the second advent of the millennial age until the creation of the new heavens and new earth after the millennial kingdom. Am I tracking me? Did I just... Okay, we have no hair left. All right. So let me just explain a few terms. If you don't know what eschatology is, that word in your notes, eschatological, eschatology comes from two different Greek words smushed together. It comes from the Greek word eschat, 
Jesus, which means last or end, and then ology, which comes from the Greek word logos, which means understanding or word. So the word eschatology means the study of the end times. Now, personally, I take a pre-trib, premillennial view of eschatology, meaning that we have a rapture, seven years of tribulation, the earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom of Jesus, then the great white throne of judgment, and then the new heaven and the new earth. The reason I take that is mainly because of Revelation chapter 20 and other passages of the Bible. Now, eschatology is a very controversial subject. Amen? We have uh, debates about it in church circles. Um, I'm just going to say something, and you can disagree with me. It's cool, you know? If you want to come up to me after the service today and argue with me, that's cool. Like, I'll just probably give you a hug and hand you a Diet Coke and tell you to relax. Everything's fine. Um, or a cup of coffee. Everything's cool. Um, because the only non-negotiable, the only thing that we absolutely have to, have to adhere to is that Jesus is coming back. You know, Baptist circles, they, had, they called it pan-millennialism. That everything pans out in the end. In other words, what? That you can be a Christian and be pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture. You can be a Christian and believe in all millennials or pre-millennials or post-millennials. That, that is technically you can be. I take a pre-trib, pre-millennial view. And what's interesting about the minor prophets, I'm sorry if this sermon is, woo, I hope the three or four people that are hanging in with eat it up. Okay. So, <laughs> so one of the things I've noticed about the minor prophets is, man, this is the outline of almost every minor prophet. It is what was, what is, and what will be. What happened in the past, what is happening, and what will happen. And almost always in the Minor Prophets, what will happen is an eschatological truth in the future. So we see there is pending judgment upon the nation of Edom. I think it's imminent by the nation of Babylon. We see it also that all nations will be judged in the day of the Lord, which takes place through the tribulation, through the millennial kingdom, and it is capped off at the great white throne of judgment. And then verse 16, this is the second piece of the judgment. But just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. So this is the judgment. So we have Edom's charge is pride. Their verdict is guilty. Their sentence is judgment, imminent and eschatological. But we aren't finished yet. You know, if you're the nation of Israel, what has just happened to you? If you're a Jew in the 6th century B.C. and the nation of Babylon just came and conquered, how are you feeling? You know, okay, if someone burned down your house, okay, how would you be feeling the next day? Probably not good. Hopefully no one burns down your house, okay? But that feeling. So the nation of Israel, I think in some ways, verses 17 to 21, is given to the land of Edom, but it's also, I think, given to the nation of Israel. Notice their redemption. And it's further planted in eschatology. It is planted, actually, in the Abrahamic covenant. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, and so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. I believe that this is describing events that happen during the day of the Lord. 
that the house of Jacob will be a fire. In my opinion, is referring to the southern kingdom. Joseph, a flame, is referring to the northern kingdom. And that the fire of the whole kingdom of Israel that has been now united will then consume the nation of Edom and their possessions. And the, nation, the house of Esau will be as stubble. Okay? There is no nation of Edom today, right? Okay? But their descendants are still existing. The Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. That is who are the Edomites today, biologically. So we see in verse 17 and 18, we see... This describe eschatological redemption, but this is where the Abrahamic covenant comes into play in verse 19. And you know, when I was studying the book of Obadiah, I was like, what is up with all of this land stuff and these funny names? But I believe it's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau and those of, I don't know, uh, the Philistine plain, verse 20. Also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among. Notice that. It's been combined now. It's interesting. It said in sons of Judah. Now it says the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as got me and the exiles of Jerusalem who are got me again will possess the cities of the Negev. And the livers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be. The Lord. So we see here this land stuff. What is it rooted in? So if you remember your history, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see a man named Abraham. In the book of Genesis chapter 12, you see the blessing and the covenant of the Abrahamic covenant. You see that there are three things to that covenant. You see that there is land, seed, and blessing. But what we don't see in Genesis chapter 12, what we see unfold in the subsequent chapters is the specifics of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, number one, he is promised a seed. Genesis 15, what happens? Abraham is without child, if you remember that story. But God has promised him to make him a great nation. There's a one problem. Abraham is in his 90s at that time, and he's saying, God, where's my child? You say, I'm going to have a great nation that descends from me. Where is my kid? Because his wife, Sarah, was barren. Remember all this stuff? So then God gives him a son named Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 15, God takes him outside and asks Abraham to count the stars. And then Abraham, of course, can't count them all. And then God says, well, so shall your descendants be. And then in Genesis 15, later on in Genesis 15, you see a promise of the land portion. So the promise of Abraham is the land, seed, and blessing. His seed will be a great nation. The blessing is that he will, God will curse those who curse him and bless those who bless him. So we see an example in the book of Obadiah. But then you see also in Genesis chapter 15, you see the specific land that is promised to the nation of Israel. Verse 18. To your descendants, this is what's promised to Abraham and the great nation. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to as far as the great river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and Raphim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gershutite and the Jebusite. So that is a list of land and peoples that is going to be encompassed in the Abrahamic covenant, the land portion. Okay, carry that with me into the book of Obadiah. 
What is God promising to the nation of Israel? I take this to mean in the day of the Lord. He is promising that the land portion that is given to them in Genesis 15, they will certainly inherit. And it's all spelled out in the book of Obadiah. You tracking with me on all that? Okay. You know, if you want my notes after that, feel free to. Okay. <laughs> I know this is a lot, of, a lot going on here. So that Israel's redemption is that they will inherit the land of the Abrahamic covenant. That's the last blank. They will inherit the land of the Abrahamic covenant. So if you see the book of Obadiah and Genesis 15, they kind of correlate together. They bring the two together that all of the promises given to the nation of Israel will come to pass in the day of the Lord. But allow me to set aside the encyclopedia and allow me to give you the Cliff Notes version of the book of Obadiah. Cliff Notes in high school were for slackers, okay, and I bought every one of them I could, okay. And these days, uh, we have Wikipedia. So to give you an idea, the book of Obadiah in a word is pride. Pride, their pride is rooted in a false sense of security, is rooted in bitterness toward the nation of Israel for something that happened between Jacob and Esau. The fruit of their pride, the fruit of their bitterness is seen in a lack of action, letting Babylon just come on and conquer Israel. The fruit of bitterness is seen in a lack of action and rejoicing over their demise. And then we see the judgment. The judgment is both imminent and eschatological. And then we see Israel's redemption is purely eschatological in this particular regard. It is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant given in Genesis chapter 15, which will come to pass in the day of the Lord. Okay. Yeah, that's the question of the hour. Um, how do we take the book of Obadiah and really apply it to our life? You know, my goal, as I mentioned last week, my goal with the application section, my goal with every sermon is not to just Indian burn or to guilt anybody in particular or anything like that. I, I, I really want to prepare. I think about myself and the word of God, and that's about it. Um, and my my goal is not to you know, cause you to be uncomfortable. It's just to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord, to take out the sins and the things that interfere with your walk with the Lord. So, you know, today I just really want to ask you a few questions and they're on the back of your note sheet. If you want to follow along, you can. The questions are all related to the issue of pride. Because it is impossible to be prideful and really grow in your relationship with God. Where do I get that from? It says in the Bible, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is antithetical to a healthy relationship with the Lord. So the question I have are four questions as a whole. Number one is, where is pride rooted in your life? We all have it. If you saw last week, a lot of us have pride. We feel like we really don't need God because of our possessions that... You know, we have a paid-for house or we have a bunker in the desert of New Mexico with guns and ammo and food for, you know, 100 people for 100 years. We feel like we don't need God. Well, that's a source of pride. We don't need God because of our nest egg in retirement. Or we don't need, you know, we don't need God because we have great allies and great relationships. We don't need God because of our intelligence. Well, if everything was taken away, I still don't need to trust God because I'll figure it out. Those are all points of pride. Number one, where is pride in your life? Pride can be in any of those sorts. And also pride can be in the source of bitterness and anger and fury. Number one. Number two is if there is a root of anger and rage in your life, then my second question is who is your Moby Dick? Who is the person? Who is the thing? What is the object? 
what is that event or frustration or hurt of your past that causes you to overlook the value of people, overlook trusting the Lord, and for the sake of getting even, like Captain Ahab to the whale Moby Dick. Um, number three, if it is a particular person, what are we forgetting about that person? And then number four is what should we do? Um, I don't know about you, but I really don't want to stand before the Lord at the great white throne of judgment and him talk about all of, I don't know, all of the Moby Dicks in my life, all of the resentments I carry, and it's a generational sin in my family. I have, you know, it's abundant, it gets in my genetics. Friends, life is painful enough. Do not make it harder on yourself. Forgive. At times, we each are Edom, and we seek to rule over the issues in our life. We target hurt, but friends, let forgive. Let the Moby Dicks in your life go, because there are Ishmaels in your life, just innocent bystanders on the ship of your life that will suffer the consequences for your actions and I've seen it in my life and in my family as well but to some of us here today we're not deceived by pride rooted in bitterness we're deceived by pride because either we think we are right with God or we think that we don't need him uh, but the God of this world has blinded those of the world to the truth of God um, if you do not know where you are with Christ, if you are unsure of your salvation, then Jesus has come and he has died on the cross for you to pay for your sins in full, that if you would believe in him, that you shall be saved. What does Romans 10.9 say? It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, as your master and ruler of your life, and believe in your heart, that you shall be saved. If you're unsure of where you are with the Lord, if you want to talk to anybody, if you want to yell at me by my, about my eschatological framework, I'll be up front and I have a Diet Coke ready uh, for you. Uh, actually, I don't. I drank it. So, um, my bad. Um, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. I just thank you for just this, this, kind of this warning that we not be like the land of Edom. That we would, um, that we would just be mindful of who people are, of who you are. Um, Lord, I know that this was thick and it was deep and it was, it was a lot going on. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we would just learn uh, from them. And Lord, that we would rejoice as Christians and eschatological hope that we have in the future. That you are coming back and that you will make all things new. And Lord, we, we rejoice in that. We hope in that. And Lord, thank you for my church. I just thank you for the faithfulness of our people. I thank you for the testimony that they carry with them. Um, Lord, I finally pray for those that don't know you as Savior. I pray that the God of this world would be shut up and that God, uh, the, you, the Spirit of God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and their need for Jesus. Lord, thank you for today. and We lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.